Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And today, we're very pleased to welcome General C.Q. Brown, the Chief of Staff of our United States Air Force. And General Brown has guided the Air Force through significant geopolitical changes. The COVID-19 pandemic, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine, and dealing with increasingly aggressive China. He's also overseen several recapitalization and modernization efforts that will impact the force for years to come. And as we all know, he's been nominated to serve as the 21st Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So General Brown, um, it's really great to have you back again and uh, to kind of kick this off, I'd like to give you a couple of minutes to offer us your perspectives on what's going on in the world today. Sure, Dave. You know, I'll start with a quote. And uh, you know, President Reagan once said, the history teaches that wars begin when governments see the uh, price of aggression is, is cheap. And yeah, I think you've seen that uh, in, in Europe. That's something that we as a, as a military want to ensure from a deterrent standpoint that we are doing the things to provide the uh, capabilities to uh, you know, compete, deter, and if the nation does call, to win. Dave, uh, naturally, I want to thank you. Uh, we've uh, known each other for a number of years and this opportunity to spend time with you. Uh, today, um, and uh, with the audience at the Mitchell uh, Institute uh, Aerospace uh, Nation Forum, um, you know, there's a few things that I would uh, kind of start off with and think through. Is just the number of strategic documents that have come out over the course of the past uh, a couple of years, uh, with national security strategy, national defense strategy, uh, nuclear posture review, missile defense review, um, national military strategy. And when you think about the national security strategy, where it talks about invest, build, and uh, modernize. Uh, the fact of investing in, in uh, American capability and technology, uh, the aspect of building coalitions, and then the aspect of modernizing the force, all three of those, you know, resonate with me um, and right in line with my thinking and my approach as the uh, Air Force Chief of Staff. And then I think about the uh, national defense strategy, national military strategy in particular, and uh, the things it's laid out for, uh, you know, how we need to look at integrated deterrence, uh, campaigning and building enduring advantage. Um, and then a national uh, military strategy, which talks about strategic discipline. When you roll all those together, that's what, you know, I, I look at how I um, move forward on the Air Force, but it's kind of the way I've operated and thought through. And just, you know, it's, it's actually nice that everything uh, aligns um, from my thinking and approach, and it gives me an opportunity to try to continue to drive change and really to accelerate change. And I do think we, we are making progress. Um, as, as you highlight, as I've been focused on modernization, I. Um, I look at the budget for FY23, the budget that's on the hill for the FY24, and uh, as an Air Force, the Department of Air Force, uh, I do feel that we are uh, have gained uh, some traction with the things that we need to be able to do. And, uh, you know, my goal now is to maintain that momentum um, as, as we move forward. Um, we got great teamwork um, um, internal to the air staff with the Secretary of Staff and with the space staff. Uh, Secretary Kendall, under his leadership, uh, and you probably all heard him talk about one team, one fight. Um, he's really focused to bring everybody together. Uh, you know, I will just tell you, you know, my role accelerate change or lose. I had no idea that uh, Secretary Kendall would be our Secretary of the Air Force, and it just uh, again another great match. Uh, I have great operational expertise. He has great acquisition and technical expertise, and the two of those together, um, we're being able to move things forward. And I'd also highlight, you know, uh, Jay Raymond, uh, the first CSO, and uh, uh, Salty Salzman, uh, the current uh, uh, Chief of Space Operations. Uh, the teamwork uh, across our staffs and with our services are, are really important. So we've been able to do, uh, particularly in FY24, um, you know, move forward on the operational imperatives, 
um, look at the modernization in, in certain areas, uh, multi-year procurement from emissions. Um, we look more at our readiness accounts and some foundational areas for our, and as we are in the process of uh, doing our, uh, our POM for fiscal year 25, um, we're already diving into the details of being able to do, uh, you know, kind of double it down in certain areas. Uh, but knowing, um, you know, as many of you are aware with the Fiscal Responsibility Act, uh, it's laid in some things. And so we are going to, like, no, just like any other budget, there's always going to be tough choices. And it's how we prioritize. And uh, not only for the Air Force to ensure that we have, a, you know, a combat-credible Air Force uh, with the Space Force, but it's also the aspect to make sure that we're able to do things to support the joint team and do things in line with their allies and partners. So um, it's been my focus, you know, for almost three years now as a chief. Um, you know, pending confirmation, you can expect kind of the same. You know, I am who I am. Uh, I think about joint operation. I think about uh, combat capability. Uh, I will continue to push ourselves to ensure that we uh, have the capabilities to provide the nation uh, what it's asked us to do uh, to ensure not only our national security, but the security uh, with our allies and partners. So I, I look forward to the conversation this morning and the, and the questions, and uh, um, I'll turn over to you, and I'm ready to roll. Okay, well, thanks a million for that, Chief. Um, no one could ask more of an Air Force leader or a national military leader uh, to do what you just outlined. So um, I very much appreciate that. Let's let's dive right into some questions. I mean, uh, the, uh, I think you're fully aware that the combatant command demands for air power uh, are now greater than they ever have been, often exceeding the capability of the Air Force to, to generate. Uh, but at the same time, the vector of the number of forces that we have in the Air Force um, is is headed down. So how do you think is the best way to explain the potential risk to uh, the American people and the and the Congress with respect to the conditions that exist? Well, you know, um, well, first of all, I, I highlight that I've seen both sides of the coin, having, uh, you know, served it in combat commands as deputy commander as well as uh, the air component. So being a consumer and one of those, but uh, I've also been thoughtful and pragmatic, particularly as now as I've come in as a chief. You know, one of the areas that uh, we've put in to help us better articulate internally and externally as we went into our Air Force fourth generation uh, construct, where we're able now to better lay out what our overall capacity is, what our readiness looks like, and not just what it looks like for, you know, each fiscal year, each calendar year, but what does it look like over time? Because I think it's important that you be able to show um, the impact over time because you can make a decision in a moment not realizing what the impact is going to be further down, uh, down the line. And, and that's the part of where I've asked our staff to put together what is our overall capacity, not only for uh, this fiscal year, but as you look across uh, a, a FIDAP and have a better perspective, you know, it'll help inform a different decision uh, of how you might use that capability capacity. What I will tell you is because of the way we've been able to put some of these things together and visualize and simplify it and also get on the same page, um, we've had some uh, some traction with internal to the uh, uh, the building as we start looking at global force management and how we deploy our forces to also uh, maintain level readiness, but also as we communicate uh, on the Hill uh, what the impact is. I think the key part for us is uh, being able to articulate the risk and the impact and be able to paint the picture that's, that you can see. Because it's one thing to talk. But one th another is to lay it out in, in an analytical form that people can visualize, and then they can actually see uh, what the impact is. Um, the last thing I'd say on this is that uh, when I engage with the combatant commanders, um, you know, particularly when you have these contentious issues where uh, they, they want more Air Force, and I tell them, don't fight against the Air Force, fight for the Air Force. 
We want more Air Force. We need to resource more Air Force. And so uh, that's part of my dialogue with the combatant commanders as they, as they work their, their priority list uh, and be able to highlight uh, where we have capability and capacity and uh, the things they can help advocate for to ensure that we all, as a joint force, have the capabilities that uh, we all need. That's great. Really uh, appreciate those insights. One of the one of the bright spots that's coming down the pike in the context of force structure is the B twenty one radar uh, radar radar. Yeah. Um, as as I think our audience all knows, it's uh, uh, set to make its maiden flight um, later this year, and that's a uh, great news uh, given that. Yeah. You know, this stealthy bomber is a key part of the triad and helps us uh, bolster U.S. deterrence. So what what are your thoughts along the lines of uh, how we might ramp bomber capacity uh, to meet COCOM demands, both for real-world warfighting contingencies as well as uh, the deterrent function? Well, I think it's there's, a, there's things I think about. It's, it's the aspect of um, not only the bomber capacity, but it's also the capability. So when, when I and not just for bombers. When I, I think about our Air Force, um, there's a balance between uh, capability and capacity. Um, and so we could have high-end capability, but not much capacity because it just costs too much. Like the B-2. Right. And, and Exactly. So you have small numbers. Um, but the other part of that is not just the bomber. It's the munitions that go with it. It's the sensors that support it. It's the airmen. I mean, it's all these things that kind of come together. And if you don't have that, you don't have a complete package. And so that's an area that I, I, I do focus on. Uh, to ensure that we're able to, to have the complete package. And then on top of that is uh, how we use those bombers. The thing I think about, when, and really when I wrote Action Order C on competition, uh, the aspect of competition wasn't just to say, hey, compare our bombers to their capability, uh, but it's also, if you're going to deter, you need to understand who you're deterring and what message you're sending. And uh, so you could fly and burn a lot of JP-8 doing things, but is it sending the message that you want to be received by our adversaries and by our allies and partners. And that takes a bit more deep, I, I think, deeper thought right. than uh, hey, we're just going to fly and then hope that's going to send the right message. So it requires how do we set things up? How do we do the uh, collection to determine that uh, the message we are trying to send is a message that's being received um, and then how we adjust if, if it's not. Um, and so for that bomber capacity, um, you know, thinking about the B-21, you, um, the message of it coming out back in December, but once we start flying it and flying it in the right places with the right uh, 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 tone uh, as far as you know where we're flying, who we're flying with, what type of mission we're doing, uh, we've got to be thoughtful about how we, uh, how we do that. And you'll get more capability and capacity by being thoughtful. And that's the thing I, I want to make sure we're focused on. And there is the option, because we are early on in the production phase, uh, to look at as an option in the future, perhaps increasing uh, production capacity. Oh, potentially. And I, I, here's the thing I would highlight is the, uh, the one thing that uh, has made the B-21 program successful is collaboration. And the collaboration between our uh, ops, uh, requirements with our acquisition professionals and with our industry partners. Uh, they work them very closely together and because they're working closely together uh, and then on top of the technology to be able to do the digital engineering yeah. and the fact that we're building the, uh, the early uh, versions of the test articles on the same line that we're going to produce, we're already learning how we're going to be able right. to produce uh, better. And then, you know, that'll help drive down costs, uh, get airplanes on time. Uh, uh, and uh, those are the kinds of things that I think we will provide opportunities right. um, if uh, there was a decision at some point in the future to increase the uh, 
procurement. Well, clearly things are going well with the V21 program when you hear folks who sometimes tend to be a bit critical about the program, uh, like Chairman Smith, say really laudatory things about the program. So uh, you put together right. a great equation. and uh, Well, you know, I think those that sometimes that are um, may not have the same perspective because they want to put it in the same model of how we've done programs in the past. Um, I would say this is this, this is uh, different. Yeah. And as I highlight, based on the collaboration and the uh, where we are technology-wise, that we have opportunities to do things different. And as I've told someone, that's you know, uh, who do we want, want to do it first, us or them? Yeah. And there's times that we've got to be able to move forward, and that's that's American innovation ingenuity. You know, being able to step out and and, and we take a little bit of risk, and we have taken a little bit of risk in doing something different, um, but we'll also be able to mitigate that risk because of the collaboration and the great teamwork. Uh, across the board. Well, and if I may, I think that what one of the things that you've done that uh, has been very, very welcome is encouraging folks uh, not to be worried about making mistakes as they move forward and uh, move out uh, and take action because that's how you do accelerate change. So, sure. you know, well done on that. And one of the things that you spoke to in that last answer is a nice segue to the next point I wanted to to bring up and talk about, and that's munitions. Because mm -hmm. obviously, just like you said, advanced air combat aircraft need advanced munitions. So what, what are your thoughts on this challenge in terms of how we best move forward? Well, I think one of the areas that uh, um, I've watched this over a, a you know, number, you know, probably the last seven, eight years, is it's an area that we tend to not spend as much focus on and then think we need to. Um, in, in some cases, uh, because you don't have a, uh, a threat right on your doorstep, munitions aren't, uh, aren't you know, maybe high on your on our priority list. Well, that's different now. And you, you think about where the national security strategy is laid out with our patient challenge of uh, the People's Republic of China, the acute threat of Russia, and then you see what's happening in Europe, uh, the aspect of munitions. I'll go back to my time as the uh, Air Component Commander for CENTCOM as a CFAC. Um, we, we saw the same thing from a munitions standpoint. Um, when... Uh, KJU was uh, getting active in uh, the DPRK. We did a Korean readiness review. We, we again, we looked at really hard at munitions. Um, this is an area that we got to continue to pay attention to to ensure that we bring those along as well. Uh, in this particular budget, we have multi-year procurement um, laid out for three uh, munitions, uh, AMRAM, JASM, and LRASM. Um, but I think that personally, I believe that is just a start. We got to look at multi-year procurement so that uh, um, it helps give a predictable demand signal to industry. And it's not just the primes, it's all the subs below them. Right. So they actually have uh, supply chains laid in, they're facilitized, they have the workforce, and it's not a you know a little bit of up and down in unpredictability. And we got to be, and it helps us to be able to surge if we need to. Um, I think the other thing I would also highlight, very similar to what we talked about with the B21, uh, is as we go down this path of uh, uh, digital engineering, is, is how you're able to do things more modular in some cases. Um, because uh, I also think of you know, making them available to our allies and partners. It's great for them to have the airplanes, but they also got to have the right. munitions that are, are capable uh, as well. And how do we ensure that we have enough munitions on the shelf to support us and our, uh, and our allies and partners? And so uh, this is something that uh, I think we need to continue to uh, uh, focus on and, and ensure we have a complete package of capability um, for all our weapon systems. Yeah, speaking of that complete package thing and sort of, Elaborating a bit on this topic, um, Ukraine, as you mentioned earlier, um, clearly has 
reason, the importance of being able to provide spare parts when they're needed. Uh, you talk a little bit about the industrial base, but what are your thoughts on, because it's not just DOD, but it's also um, our industrial base capacity, whether or not that we'll be able to produce the kind of spares and the quantities that we need. Any any additional thoughts you'd like to offer in that regard? Uh, sure. Um, I think the because we've actually over time probably got uh, very efficient and just in time, um, we've got to look at how we uh, we change that approach. So there is the funding of how we do our weapons and sustainment um, and some stability in that funding uh, and predictability so we can go after the spare parts. Uh, because of technologies, there's opportunities to do uh, 3D printing. And, and then there's airworthiness for some of the, the parts that are 3D printed. So some have to have an airworthiness uh, aspect to them, others do not. How do we ensure we have the right, uh, you know, um, uh, capable and capacity to actually do uh, 3D parts in, uh, and also the right quality control uh, as we go forward. And that's the one value of uh, what I've seen as a more for the industry partners on uh, the digital engineering, where you actually have a digital blueprint that uh, you can all the way down to your sub, so you can ensure that the you know, what they're producing uh, right. meets the right quality control. Um, I think the other is um, the aspect of being able to use the data. And uh, we've gone down the path of, in, in some of our platforms for uh, condition-based uh, maintenance, where it's um, with data. You know, when, based on the service life of this part, how long before it's going to break. So you don't wait till it breaks. You're able to replace it a little bit sooner, which also can help create the demand signal to the supply chain, where you can predict versus waiting. You know, um, right. you know, at a, at a pull, you can actually push because you have the data. Uh, I think we have opportunities there in our rapid sustainment office is, is taking looks at this as, uh, as well to, um, to use the data to be a little more predictive in, uh, you know, not only the uh, how we change the parts, but also, to, you know, work the supply chain. Anticipate. All right. Okay, well, we just talked about part shortfalls. We also have a pilot shortfall. Um, and that's been a persistent challenge for many years for the Air Force. Um, obviously, it involves recruiting, it involves training, it involves things like mm -hmm. absorption, which to some people is a, uh, you know, kind of magic. So could you talk a little bit about how you assess these challenges and how we're, how the, how we're moving the Air Force forward? Well, it's, uh, it's not only a challenge for the Air Force, it's a challenge for the, uh, the rest of the military. And also, I'd also say it's a challenge for the nation. Uh, in fact, I was just on uh, one of our, uh, as I'm LinkedIn this morning, it was a uh, it talked about not only for the major airlines, regional airlines, but also the military, that the, the, it's a demand for talent, uh, those that want to uh, uh, operate in the aviation industry, particularly as, as pilots. There's a few things that we've, uh, uh, we've done and are doing, and, and part of this is to look across the entire ecosystem of how we uh, uh, are our pilot corps. And it's the aspect of our, uh, our production, our absorption as we bring them in, you know, once they finish pot training, how do we get them to their major weapon system? And then the, uh, uh, and then also the retention. We've done, uh, you know, a number of different initiatives. And what I've really asked our team to do is take a look at the various initiatives we've already done. Where are they actually moving things forward? And then are there other opportunities where we change the paradigm of the things that we've done in the past to uh, increase our production um, and uh, overall uh, uh, pilot force? What I'll tell you is that we are 100% manned in cockpits, so we basically ensure we're 100% manned, and we take our our um, our cuts on on the staff. So we're probably 70% manned on the staff. Now, what I've also looked at is, um, and we're going through a review um, that our A3 is leading, is do all the 
pilot positions we have on staff actually require a pilot or doesn't require someone with operational expertise. Um, and what I'm really been focused on over the course of the past two years is how do we ensure that all of our airmen to the best of our ability have a level of operational acumen. And you think about how we've done the developmental categories where we have a you know, operational uh, category on the officer's side. Well, if you're in that category, you should be able to do, you know, and have good operational expertise where it doesn't require a flex. Because I think you're aware how we how some of these uh, poly requirements come around. You had a poly come in that job, you liked it, and you said, from here on out, I need to have that kind of capability. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And uh, that's part of the reword, that's part of the reword we're looking at, um, which will help, uh, you know, won't knock the shorter to zero. Um, um, but it's, you know, I just also think about it's a requirement. You think about our Air Force, we probably, we always have more requirement than we have uh, uh, capacity to fill. And so uh, our requirement exceeds our, uh, our ability. We got to manage this very closely uh, to ensure we uh, are doing the right things because it's not only bringing them in the door, but it's also the retention piece. And so um, you, you've probably seen in the press, we, uh, the aviation bonus just changed, but we're also looking at other things because it's not just the money, it's the quality of life uh, pieces that we have to pay attention to. Uh, assignment preference we're, uh, we're looking at uh, as well. Um, uh, allowing members to uh, stay at various locations a bit longer. Uh, quick, quick example is uh, we had a couple of uh, uh, first assignment instructor pilots at Laughlin. They want to stay at Laughlin because uh, their spouses have jobs and don't necessarily want to leave. Typically, our system would tell them you'd have to go on to a major weapon system. I, I want to be able to support what they're trying to be able to do because um, that's going to retain them. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's those like things like that that we've got to look at it, how we break some of these paradigms that we've had in the past and just don't do a one size fits all. We have some opportunities to do some th some unique things to, uh, um, you know, each one of those helps. Right. You know, it's not, you know, we're not going to get it to zero, but it will help. That's great. Oh. Um, related area. Um, it's no secret that today pilots are not getting the same amount of flying time that we did when we first started flying. I, I wax, uh, uh, I, I look back in history, I, I got a thousand hours in four years, my first four years, and, and it's not like that uh, anymore today. What are your thoughts in along the same lines of how we uh, make sure that our pilots are getting sufficient exposure to the physical act of flying to keep them right. experienced? Well, there's, there's a couple of things that, uh, uh, a handful of things we're doing. Uh, one is, uh, you know, full, fully funding uh, our flying air program to what we can execute. Um, and then it's also um, how we pay attention to weapons and sustainment because it also provides uh, for the um, uh, aircraft availability. And then it's also the maintenance experience that uh, is also required. Um, particularly as you start thinking about some of our older platforms where they're, um, they're you know breaking twice twice as much and taking uh, about a third longer to fix that decreases your aircraft availability um, the other thing we are also looking at is um, um, you know we have a number of attached flyers in certain areas or those that uh, fly they may be you know taking up some flying hours that could be used for some of our younger uh, uh, air crew and so we're looking at that scrubbing those you know we've got position you know we've got positions ready to staff or you're on a staff but you can still get to fly some of those you need to do. Some of those have been nice to do. Uh, we're going to have to get to uh, the things that we need to do, and the nice sure. things that are nice to do, we'll have to adjust. Um, and because we do, if we don't get airborne, then it's not just the pilot that, the, or the air crew that gets the experience, but 
the airplane then breaks, which gives the operations for the maintainers to go fix it, and then which also drives a supply chain for parts. So uh, you know, all these are important to the overall readiness of the uh, the Air Force, and so we we are focused on uh, driving some changes to uh, to help increase the flying hours. No, awesome. Let's switch gears just a little bit and uh, uh, get into the issue of uh, air battle management. That's a career field. Um, that is set for serious expansion over the long term when you take a look at things like space-based GMTI, or when you take a look at E7, and roles where that expertise is going to help empower JADC2 and ABMS. Um, but those billets, uh, like most stuff, is tied to airframes. So how is the Air Force going to ensure that with the stand-down <coughs> of the E8 and the E3, they don't result in divesting this experience um, as they go away and we shift to these new ways of doing business, but right. there might not be direct overlap. Well, that's an area that I've, uh, I've been uh, focused on as well. And it's the aspect of, you know, ensuring we have, as we make the transition to particularly out of, uh, out of E3 towards E7, that we don't go down too low as we make that transition. So we still have, uh, um, you know that air battle management experience uh, as as we move forward. Uh, I also look at the uh, the aspect as you highlight. Um, we're going to have more space based ISR uh, here in the future, and and part of that with the uh, ground moving target indication from space, you're still going to need a, a battle manager to be able to work through this. I would say the same thing as you look at the battle management system ABMS. You're going to need battle management experience. The thing we got to think through is, is how we restructure our organizational construct of you know putting that expertise in the right place, um, and whether it's in air control squadrons that uh, do more of this versus being tied to uh, an airborne platform. Um, those are the things we are looking at to be able to you know make sure we're putting that experience in the right place. Because um, I do see <clears throat> from a space-based perspective, we're going to have you know over time more data than we know what to do with. And we've got to look at not only how we do the battle management asset, but also how we do the uh, processing, exploitation, and dissemination that's associated with it as well. Um, and that's a it's a paradigm shift. And uh, this is an area that uh, we've got to be willing to change. And that's the you know you know I've been pushing on change. It's going to make it uncomfortable. Um, and I, you know, as I say, I'd rather be uncomfortable driving change than losing because we didn't change. Yeah. No, well, that's great to hear. Um, as well as, and, and this is a topic that we could spend a whole hour uh, uh, on our own talking about, but as long as the Department of Defense maintains tasking and execution authority over those GMTI capabilities, not the intelligence community. But, well, uh, I mean, this is something that um, part of this is about building relationships. And so the, uh, you know, the senior leadership of the Air Force was uh, with one of our intel uh, entities here, uh, about uh, about six weeks ago, and we have a good working relationship. We've got to make sure that a good working relationship at the senior levels, you know, permeates down to the lower levels, so we're all moving the same way, same day. Um, and so we have opportunity. And again, it's it's a paradigm shift from the way we've done things in the past, but uh, we do need to do that to ensure that you know both the IC and the operational uh, um, aspects are working very closely together. Okay. Um... <clears throat> President Reagan's defense budgets procured nearly 200 fighters a year for several years in a row. Uh, and as we all know, those airplanes are, uh, you know, A-10s, F-15s, F-16s are nearing the end of their service life, if not already have exceeded it in the case of the F-15Cs. And credit to the Air Force for getting the, 
the, the, the palm up to procuring 72 fighters this year. But the delta between that number and the historic buys, uh, there is, it, it's obvious. So how, how are you thinking about and working to manage that risk? Well, part, part of this that I look at is uh, the, um, the capabilities of the platforms that we're, uh, we're procuring vis-a-vis -vis the uh, capabilities of the platforms that we're, uh, we're retiring. And think about it. You know, I flew the F-16 most of my career. It was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a day VFR fighter that, uh, you know, on the outside the airplane looks the same, but it has evolved tremendously uh, throughout my Air Force career. Um, the fact that we were doing lantern, doing low altitude at night, um, or, you know, we're uh, shoot, um, shooting uh, AMRAM. Um, you know, matter of fact, when I went to weapons school, all we had was a heat-seeking missile, and then when I came back as an instructor, then we got the AMRAM. And so that capability that we see now in our, uh, particularly in our fifth gen uh, with F-35, um, what we've been able to do with F-22, um, upgrades to, as I said, the F-16, uh, F-15EX, um, more capability, uh, but a little less capacity. And I would say you can go back, you know, in history as well, you know, how many bombers did it took to hit a target versus how many, Thousand you know, thousands versus do. what we could do today. Right. Um, but the quantity piece is important which is why when you think about the Air Force with collateral combat aircraft, it's a way to actually increase our quantity and also give us opportunities and options with a uh, uh, collateral combat aircraft to be a, you know, a sensor, a shooter, a jammer. Um, you know, it, it has, we have opportunities to increase that overall capacity. At the same time, we have a you know, crude, uncrewed right. uh, teaming uh, uh, concept. Um, on recruiting, Secretary uh, Kendall projected a 10% uh, shortfall in uh, meeting our recruiting goals um, this year, uh, and that's across the board, total force. Uh, could you speak to some of the challenges of today's recruiting environment? I know you did a little bit before when we talked about pilots, but recruiting in general, and right. what are your thoughts and perspectives? Yeah. So I will tell you, I think we're gonna, we're probably, we'll be something less than 10% short, particularly on active duty. It's a little higher on the, on the uh, reserve component, Guard and Reserve, uh, and part of that's based on retention. Our retention rates are really high right now, so it's uh, just above 90% for officers, just below 90% for our, our enlisted. When I think about recruiting, um, the aspect that I, 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 I've often said is young people only aspire to be what they see. You never decide to grow up to be something you've never seen. And our challenge, I think, over time, it goes back to uh, in the mid-90s where a young person had about 40% of the young people had somebody they knew who served, somebody in their family uh, particularly who had served. Right. Now it's down to about 13%. So that they don't know that about this opportunity. Uh, I'd also highlight that um, uh, we're, as an Air Force, we're half the size you were Desert Shield Desert Storm. Back in 2005, fewer bases. Um, and then after 9-11, um, all of our bases became fortresses because it would be very difficult to get on base. And so one of the areas that uh, I sent out a letter to all our wing commanders back in January and, and basically instructed them to open your base and get to the communities. Going back, you know, people always aspire to what they, you know, to be what they see. At the same time, engage with influencers, yeah, whether it's their parents, whether it's a relative, whether it's a, a coach, scout leader, guidance counselor, uh, teacher, um, because they will see a young person who has the aptitude and might be able to make a a, a match and, and point them and uh, uh, at least talk about the opportunities. And then for each one of us, uh, you know, each one of us that you know, have served that are still serving, what inspired us to join, and how do we engage? We got to realize that the competition is even more keen. 
And because uh, young people have choices and many of those choices are in the palm of their hand and they're getting bombarded with information. So it's not only what we have to be able to do in a digital environment, but we also got to build those personal connections to where you talk to them and you build that trust and confidence and be able to share stories of the opportunities. Um, and, uh, you know, what I find with our airmen, uh, when I go around and, and engage with them, I always, I'm always curious at why they join. I share my story. You know, this whole thing was my dad's idea. Four years in the military will not hurt you. That was a quote when I was in high school. Uh, but then you also hear these stories of why people join. And I think it's, to me, it's inspiring to hear. And when they share that with someone and they can, uh, a young person says, you know, I'm kind of walking in the same path and this may be an opportunity for me. Those are the things we got to be able to do. Now, the other thing we also do, we recruit, increase funding and recruiting, increase the number of recruiters that we do have. And then, uh, um, you know, also the aspect of being able to engage digitally, but we still got to have a, you know, a person on the other end that that young person, that influencer can talk to, they ask questions versus, a, you know, they just, just fill out a, a form online and, you know, hope it all works out. Um, and then you also got to think through the aspect that uh, many of the uh, um, uh, companies and uh, opportunities uh, around the nation today are using some of the same tools that we've been using for years with opportunities for education, opportunities for bonuses, those kinds of things. So, the, like I said, the competition is keen, which means we're going to have to work a bit harder um, in areas. But part of that is actually getting out and uh, being seen uh, a bit more and talking about the Air Force uh, and really the military at large. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. And, I mean, you know, I think we all think back as you were talking, you know, what, 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 what influenced you? And I think that opening up the base is a great idea. Right. I think in one of the elements that's an in, in – intangible uh, with respect to our Guard and Reserve Forces is they're present in mm -hmm. states that you otherwise wouldn't exactly. have an active duty. So there, there's a piece there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great to hear. And uh, uh, the, the more that we can all contribute to exposure right. to young folks. One, one thing I also highlight is that we, uh, we did a Tiger team led by the Vice Chief uh, Staff of the Air Force. Um, and uh, we actually did it on Microsoft Teams to drive the collaboration. But the goal here was to identify areas where we may have some barriers to entry or, um, you know, you may take a little longer to respond going through the process where a young person, you know, gets tired of waiting to get to a yes. Um, and anything we can do to streamline the process is another area uh, as well because they're, as I said, being bombarded with opportunity. And they, you know, you want to make sure that we are staying very competitive uh, in this uh, competitive job market. Yeah, very good. Um, let's switch domains a little bit uh, and talk about space with the stand-up of the Space Force. Uh, the Air Force transferred most of its space expertise to the new service. Uh, and as you're well aware, that presents some challenges down the pike. Uh, so what's the plan for uh, rebuilding may not be the right word, but what is the plan to address Air Force equities in space as we move to a future? Uh, where not yeah, necessarily yeah. the people in a space force today all came from the air force, but in a couple of generations they're not all going to come from the air force. Going to come out of the space force. So, uh, what are your thoughts in that area? You know, I, I guess I'm not as worried about that, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and the reason why I say that is because of the space force, we are all smarter on space. Um, you, I mean, you go back to space was so classified that nobody, including myself, really understood what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, that's different today, not only from uh, uh, what we do within DOD, but uh, under the Space Force, but also what's happening uh, commercially. The aspect of uh, being in the same department, 
the Department of the Air Force in a close working relationship, that's a forcing function. And I will just tell you, we're, we are so dependent on space to be able to do these things we do that uh, we're going to have a, you know, our relationship, uh, I don't see drifting too far apart. Uh, now, you, as you highlighted, you know, a few years from now, you'll have everybody who's in the space force was never in the Air Force. Um, so that, uh, you know, that could present a challenge. But, you know, part of this is a, is a constant dialogue. And because we're so dependent on each other, um, we're go we will have to raise our awareness because it's better for us to, you know, we, we're, able, we're able to ask smarter questions um, and engage in dialogue with uh, uh, those space professionals, which I don't know that we were doing before. We just assumed that it was being taken care of um, because it was behind a, you know, uh, a classification level. So you didn't really know. Um, because we're able to have a little more open dialogue and bring more people into what we're doing, I think our overall acumen for space within the Air Force is higher than it was before the Space Force stood up. Uh, one of the topics that we <clears throat> hit upon earlier, and you, you brought it up, and you, you've rightly said before that our aircraft are all static displays without the right maintenance expertise. Um, and we've talked about the pilot shortfall, uh, but it's important to remember that there's also a big maintainer gap as well. Um, what are your, your thoughts? What can you share about with our audience about how you're dealing with that? Well, you know, one of the things we did was, uh, in, you know, increase some of the, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, increase the uh, maintenance manpower. But, the, you know, what that is, it ends up being the, um, you know, very young uh, experience level. So the challenge they run into is they don't get uh, the same, um, you know, you fully man, but you're, you're short of experience. And so part of this is how do we make sure we're putting the right people in the right place. I think the other thing that we also take a look at is as we make the transition from our uh, older platforms to retire, because those same airmen that are maintaining those aircraft, you know, A-10, for example, the same one is going to maintain F-35s as they come off the line. And so we're going to make sure from a retention standpoint, we retain uh, that talent. Uh, going back to what we talked about earlier with our conditions-based maintenance and other areas to be smarter about how we do maintenance. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, uh, Dave, I've, I've watched our airmen. They've got a lot of innovative spirit. And what we've got to do is also look at the aspect of how we allow that innovative spirit, particularly within maintenance. I realize there's risk involved. There's risk involved in flying. Uh, there's risk involved in maintenance. But the, the culture of being able to take good ideas and bring them in so you, you may not get more manpower, but you effectively have more manpower because you're able to do things a bit differently than we have in the past. I mean, an example I'll, I'll share with you is... Uh, you know, when I was in, I went to visit Afton early in my time as a chief. Uh, hot pitting a KC-135. Okay, never done that before, but we started doing that. And so instead of taking four hours to refill the aircraft with multiple trucks, um, you know, multiple trucks, but doing it in an hour, and get it airborne faster. And uh, as you know, uh, airplanes, uh, when you shut them down, uh, <laughs> that's when you got to do all the maintenance. Uh, you, you can still, uh, as long as you haven't shut it down, sometimes uh, airplanes like to fly. Um, and so there's opportunities there that we got to just think differently about how we uh, how we execute as well. Very good. In that discussion, you mentioned transitioning uh, maintainers from one set of platforms to F-35. So let's segue to F-35 uh, for a minute. Um, you know, the, the technology refresh three and the block four um, upgrades tend to be a little bit confusing to folks. That's why, you know, plug for a... a our next Mitchell Institute paper is explaining TR3 and Block 4, but they're going to bring a lot of new capabilities sure. to the airplane. Could you talk about those in a, a sure. couple well, of minutes well, that tech, we have? You know, Tech Refresh 3 is the uh, avenue to get to uh, to Block 4, which is advanced capabilities. 
that'll stay ahead of the threat. And, uh, and so we're already, um, the test community with Lockheed Martin is already, uh, you know, flying uh, Tech Refresh 3 onto the airplane, which then opens the door to bring in some of the other capabilities, avionics, upgrades, and, and the like uh, to get to uh, the Block 4. And, and so um, that's important because if, uh, as we watch where the threat is going, it helps us to get to a point where we, uh, we're more capable against the, uh, uh, the threat. I, you know, when we talk about a patient challenge, I do not want to be chasing the patient challenge. I want to stay, make sure we're staying ahead of the patient challenge. And, and that's just why the TR3, Block 4, the collaboration with, with the industry, um, and several industry partners, you know, Lockheed Martin's the prime, but uh, I've had a chance to meet with uh, the, the leadership from the, the various uh, industry partners that, so we stay focused on delivery and highlight uh, and work collaboratively because, you know, as you go through this, anytime, we don't want to surprise each other. And the more we can actually be open and transparent, uh, we can solve problems much early in the process to make sure we get the capability. But it's, it really is about the threat and staying ahead of the threat. Uh, another quick one before we open it up to Q&A. Um, we talk about pacing threat being China. Um, there, there are budget restrictions, if you will, uh, that constrain what we could do in a perfect world, which would be to refresh the entire force, blah, blah, blah. But it's not the reality. So there are some options in repurposing or rethinking aircraft that still have usable time on them, like MQ-9s in the Pacific. What are kind of some of the things that we're doing that you're thinking about doing that uh, kind of shift the way we've done business in the past to adapt to new threats? Well, there's the aspect of, um, as you mentioned, MQ-9, and uh, because it can carry different you know, pods and sensors. You've watched the MQ-9 evolve over time. And the fact that it has uh, persistence, um, you know, particularly from a uh, signals intelligence perspective, uh, you still have the full motion video that, that can be used, but you're you know, kind of looking at a bit of a soda straw. But, you know, that, that's one opportunity. <clears throat> uh, the one that, uh, um, as we start to upgrade uh, munitions and uh, look at how we, um, you know, some of the testing on uh, collaborative munitions, like with, with small diameter bomb, um, is, is another example. But it's, it's taken the tools that we have today and uh, and working um, with our innovative airmen, but also with industry, uh, where we have opportunities. And one of the areas that we've been able to do in a couple of our programs is have a government reference architecture, so that we own the data as a government, and then um, more collaboration across industry, which provide these opportunities to um, not only um, you know future systems, but also some of the systems we've had in the past to be able to. Uh, work mission systems and munitions uh, a bit more quickly than we have in the past. And uh, again, it's like I described with the F-16. You know, there's ways that you yeah. can continue to upgrade and look at opportunities right. um, uh, moving forward that provides additional uh, uh, capability. Well, very good. Last one before we open it up. Uh, what are your thoughts with respect to, and I know it's still a bit early in terms of pulling away lessons from Ukraine, but in looking at how that conflict is evolving. Any thoughts with respect to, you know, applicability to U.S. defense thinking and strategy? Uh, I think there's there's several things. One is uh, conflicts usually will, will probably take longer than, than most might predict. Um, uh, the value of logistics. Um, I'd also say the value of information and how that played in this uh, particular campaign at the start as well as as the, uh, it, it goes on. And then uh, the last is the value of air superiority. Uh, neither side necessarily, ha necessarily has air superiority, but air superiority is not just the aspect of 
you know, the airplanes with the missiles, but it's also the air defenses. And I will just say that the, the watching how the Ukrainians have been able to operate um, with their air defense systems, which denies the Russians' levels of air superiority, uh, has been affected. And so that's the thing that we as a joint team got to think through. Of, in order to have air superiority, it's um, not only how we, um, you know, we attack an adversary's area to gain, gain that air superiority, it's also how we defend ourselves at uh, our location and bases. So those are the things. And then uh, supply chain, industrial base, munitions, right. all those those pieces that uh, um, I think Ukraine has helped us uh, take a look at ourselves and, and drive it in some additional focus in areas that we know we've talked about often. Um, we always haven't acted probably as, as, uh, and moved as fast. Uh, I think this is another area to help us uh, take a hard look at ourselves and, and uh, work with industry on, on how we do that. And as I said, we've, we've got some of that laid into the budget for fiscal year 24. Well, Chief, thanks very much for taking those initial questions. What we're going to do now is shift to um, our audience. Um, most of you there in the uh, in TV land uh, understand the routine. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, use a raise hand, or you can type in on the chat Q&A. So with that, let's uh, throw the first question. Uh, oh, and by the way, please identify who you are and the organization you're with um, if you're speaking. So let's so the first question to uh, Mr. John Turpak. John, go ahead. Good morning, General. Thanks very much for doing this with us. Uh, two questions. Number one, uh, I'm sure when you came in, you had a, a short list of things you really wanted to get done. Uh, what were the things that were on that list, and uh, what's still to get done? You, you're, you're finishing a little earlier than you expected. Uh, thanks, John. Um, well, you know, the, what I would say was on my list was the, the, the four action orders. Uh, action order A for airmen, B on bureaucracy, C on competition, and D on design implementation. Now, I will also tell you as I came in the, the job, I didn't necessarily have a, um, like an end state where I'd say, hey, I could slap the table and go, I'm done, whether I did it in three years, four years, two years. Uh, but each one of these, I wanted to make sure I was moving things forward. Uh, I think we've done some things on the development of airmen. And, uh, and how we look at quality service and quality of life. Now, I'm pretty proud of the, the work that uh, I've been able to do, but I'd also, you know, shout out to my wife, Shireen, on the Five and Thrive and the, uh, the areas that impact uh, military families um, in childcare, education, housing, healthcare, and uh, spouse employment. Um, I'll come back to B. Um, on C and competition, it's the aspect of better understanding the geostrategic environment and our adversary. And I think we've, we've done some good work there to have our airmen have a better appreciation of the Indo-Pacific and our pacing challenge. Uh, on design implementation, that was the aspect of how we modernized the Air Force, and I've seen that in both uh, fiscal year 23 budget and what we have on the Hill for fiscal year 24. Uh, if there's one that uh, I feel like uh, I've made some progress, but it's what it's been the bane of my existence throughout my Air Force career is bureaucracy. I, I hate it. and. Uh, but I do think we've made some progress there and being able to um, bring together our senior leaders a bit more often to have conversations about um, some of the tough calls we have to make and have the right people in the room to be able to do it versus a kind of a slow, methodical process. Slow as methodical is good in some cases, but uh, when you, you, know, you want to make sure that you're doing things uh, as quickly as possible. If that's, that's the one area I felt like uh, I, was, you know, I was probably pretty optimistic or uh, aspirational. Uh, what I was going to be able to achieve there. Um, I'm somewhat pragmatic too that uh, I know I'm not going to change everything, but I do feel like we have gotten some momentum and I get that sense when I go to our base and visit our airmen. Um, when they talk about mission command, the aspect of they feel motivated, they, they have the 
top cover to be able to go execute and ask harder questions of ourselves and challenge ourselves. And that's, that's been, uh, you know, that helps us a bit with the bureaucracy, but we still have it. Um, but I, I feel pretty good about what we've been able to do. Um, naturally, I wish I could have done more in the, in the time that I had, but uh, as I said, I, I don't think I had a, uh, like a, a marker of everything that I would say, hey, by this time, I want to get these things done. But we have got quite a bit done. I've been, I'm pretty proud of that. Okay. I also want to follow up something that uh, General Dentula asked about, uh, particularly in electronic warfare. Uh, we have electronic warfare systems going away. A lot of uh, WISOs and EWOs don't have a, a home right now. How do you plan to rebuild that cadre of, uh, of experienced electronic warfare practitioners? Well, one of the areas that uh, John we're working on is uh, is the secretary in the, the leadership of the Air, uh, Department of the Air Force uh, looked at not only the operation of prayers, we also looked at some cross-cutting operational enablers. And electronic warfare or electromagnetic spectrum uh, operations superiority is one of those cross-cutting operational enablers that we've uh, been focused on. And uh, really looking at what our own capabilities are um, as from a, from a uh, platform and a technology standpoint, but at the same time, uh, the aspect of our, our workforce and expertise. As you said, it was something that we were probably pretty good at uh, in the past, but it's something we got to continue to work on and make sure we have the right uh, right expertise. And uh, we, we have the Spectrum Warfare Wing that was set up uh, here about almost three years ago. Um, and that's another area that we're, you know, having the right expertise that's uh, focused on this particular uh, uh, missionary is, is also important. Thank you, sir. Okay, let's go to Brian Everstein. Um, at the beginning, we had a good update on the B-21. I was wondering if you could um, similarly give your assessment on where things stand with Sentinel, the GBSD. Are we still looking at a first test flight this year? And also, can you talk a little bit about what you want to see in NC-3 modernization, which isn't really talked about as much? Uh, what do you hope to see with Stayoff, for example? Well, the uh, on, uh, on Sentinel, I think we're... we're, we're we're still on track for our, our first flight, and one of the areas we're, we're continuing to work very closely with uh, our industry partner on uh, um, driving down uh, any type of risk getting to that first flight, but also just over the long term as, as well. Uh, on the NC3, um, uh, we are focused, and part of that is the aspect of what we're doing with uh, uh, General Luke uh, Cropsey um, on the aspect of uh, C3 Battle Management as our, as our lead program element officer. officer uh, but also, uh, matter of fact, we had a conversation a little bit about this uh, the, uh, today on that same level of focus as we bring um, that, what he's working on, because it also supports the NC3. Uh, and then for SEAC, uh, that, that's funded and we'll continue to work forward uh, on, on, uh, on SEAC. So uh, big picture, as we move forward on advanced battle management system, uh, joint domain, uh, all domain command and control, NC3 uh, rides on the backbone of some of that work, and we got to make sure that we uh, uh, keep all those things aligned. And that's uh, that's my focus as the uh, as the chief. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Jim Laducci. Thank, thank you, thank you, Dave. And Chief, my question has to do with um, uh, recruiting and retention, specifically in the cyber operations support career field. I know it's a tough challenge because we're not just competing with defense industry; we're competing with commercial industry. This kind of talent. Um, what can we do in the Air Force to not only attract people to come, but to stay in with all the opportunities available to them on the outside? Right. Well, Jim, thanks for first of the question. You know, one, one of the things is we're, we're, you know, as you probably aware, we're not being able to match maybe necessarily um, 
from a uh, financial standpoint, but I do think we can match an opportunity as far as uh, you know, meaningful work in inside of the Department of the Air Force and inside DOD from a cyber perspective. One of the areas that uh, I've been focused on is, and think the opportunity has been presented partly because as we did the developmental categories, we had opportunities to not have everyone develop in the same way. Uh, we are building out a technical track for those that, uh, particularly in cyber, and, and uh, we're also looking at some aspects of engineering, so that you don't necessarily have to follow a tried and true career path. You have a different path, and, and some of this is be able to stay. If you like what you're doing, you can kind of stay in that and don't have to go into a position where you have to go into a position of leadership. You, you stay more of a, on a technical track. So, so that is one area that, uh, uh, one aspect that uh, we're looking at. The other that um, we're also um, pushing forward on is, you know, typically when you look at uh, a member's uh, duty history and you look at education, the education is usually tied to community college of the Air Force for uh, our enlisted airmen, uh, whatever um, uh, four-year degree or advanced degrees they have. We don't actually capture the fact that they've got and gone and gotten some level of certification in cyber, which may be really, really important and more important maybe than uh, a full academic degree. And so we're, we're going through the path of actually capturing that inner duty history and how we, how we value that for the whole person uh, concept uh, uh, going forward. Um, and then uh, there may be other opportunities of allowing a member not to move, you know, to stay in a location for an extended period of time. And so we're really trying to break the paradigm, um, particularly for cyber and some of these other really technical career fields where we know it's important in order to retain We've got to uh, change the model for, for those. And, it, and again, it can't be just about money. It's got to be some of these other factors that, it, that uh, I think will help with their uh, retention. Thanks. Okay, let me take a question uh, from the uh, uh, chat room here. This one's from uh, Eric Schmidt from New York Times Chief. Um, and here's his question. What adjustments have the Russian and Ukrainian Air Forces made in recent months to prepare for the impending Ukrainian counteroffensive that now seems to be kicking off, and how important will air operations be in this phase? Well, without getting into you know operation details, I think what you you know highlighted is the uh, the aspect of uh, what the Ukrainians have been able to do in support of uh, uh, air defense, um, the aspect of bringing Patriots as well as the other uh, weapon systems, and then how they've been able to use those. Uh, not only to, to defend Kyiv, but other areas within uh, Ukraine have been able to, to be somewhat mobile with those. And because of that mobility uh, and being able to shoot down uh, the one-way UAV, shoot down the cruise missiles, but also shooting down aircraft, um, that actually uh, puts a little bit of fear into the, uh, the Russian pilots, and they're less uh, inclined to venture in, in locations. And that's where I see uh, aspects of uh, air power playing into um, you know, uh, the, the counter-offensive. It, it keeps Russian air power off the back of the uh, Ukrainians and it allows them to execute uh, uh, a bit better based on their being able to use their air defenses uh, to, uh, I would say, to their advantage. Okay, uh, Chief, let's switch to the other side of the world. This question is from Tony Capasio at Bloomberg News. Do you think the United States should increase bomber task force flights into the Pacific to include the B-2 for messaging to China, given the increased tensions like the recent naval engagement? Well, you know, I think part of this is, uh, as we look at deterrence, um, I do think about uh, all our operations activity investments and, and, and how we do those a bit more holistically. So, uh, Tony, to be able to say, hey, just do more bomber missions into the Indo-Pacific, and that's going to send the right message. Do we really understand that? 
Um, and as that goes back to some of the earlier uh, comments I made is, uh, how well do we understand the activities we do on what it does for deterrence? Or does it actually ramp up um, and decrease deterrence because of the activity? Um, that is something that we've got to continue to work on um, and be uh, strategic in how we, uh, how we, uh, how we execute. So um, what, I, what I would tell you, it's something we would, uh, would consider. And I you know, defer really to Amar Aquilino uh, on, that, uh, on that aspect. Uh, we just want to make sure if that, those options are laid out that we provide the, uh, the capability and capacity to be able to execute. Okay, let's switch back to raised hands and go to Frank Wolf. Frank, and uh, uh, please unmute your mic. Yeah, uh, hi, Joe. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to uh, ask about the uh, F-15 strike eagles. Um, Uh, you know, uh, fuel, uh, water, 
food, munitions, things that we can all use. And how we do that better, is, you know, think through that as a joint force, gives us options so that you can have various capabilities operating from, uh, either together at a location or, you know, an Air Force unit could be there, move, and a Marine Corps unit could come in right behind or, or, or something else. So um, those are the areas I think we need to think through of uh, how we align ourselves and then better understand our, our schemes and maneuver as we do this because that's going to drive uh, some logistics challenges that I think we need to continue to work through as a joint force. Well, Chief, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to be with us today and provide us uh, some uh, incredible perspectives and insights. And uh, we certainly uh, here at Mitchell Institute and the Air Force, Air and Space Forces Association wish you all the best in your future and endeavors. And uh, to you and all of our members out there and, and listeners, we wish you a, a great aerospace power kind of day. All right. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure.